This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, this week's episode got touched off on September 4th of 2016. I have to tell you, I don't exactly remember what I was doing on September 4th of 2016, though I have two tools in my toolbox to determine it. One is that I do keep an active calendar on iCal, so I pretty much have typed in for years every appointment, everything that I've done. I even go back later on and update my calendar and change the times if a meeting went long or a drive was shorter than I thought it was, and so I'm pretty anal about keeping my calendar up to date. So I could go back and check that. And as I've mentioned, I've been keeping a journal, trying to write a short paragraph to myself, perhaps every single day of this year. So I could go back and check what was happening on September 4th, 2016, except that I'm too lazy, and it's really not about me. It's about what happened in a small place on Twitter on September 4th of 2016. So one of my favorite longtime fools. One of our Motley Fool members, Danny Venna, he's at Danny Venna on Twitter. He tweeted out a link to a CNN article entitled, Sex Ed is Required, Why Isn't Financial Education? And Danny, in his tweet, went on to say, At David G. Fool has been lobbying for this for years, financial education in schools. That's what started today's episode. Now, two days after that, I just tweeted back at Danny saying simply, I appreciate you pointing that out, Danny. We have definitely put in effort here over the years. We need to do more. And we have. We have put in a lot of effort toward financial education over the years. Um, Certainly, we've been out to schools many times over the last couple of decades. I've been there with my brother sometimes, sometimes by myself, sometimes other members of The Motley Fool. Really, it's it's happened for a long time. Fool employees who are parents just going to their child's class and speaking to them. And forget about our employees, because we're a small company. We have a worldwide membership, and I know many of you have done these kinds of things, uh, sometimes just inspired by your own experience of either having not been taught very well or having been taught quite well. And in either case, I think it makes you want to help kids and to help other people forget about kids here, to help others learn this topic. In fact, just earlier this year, I toured, I went to the University of Richmond, I went to Berea College in Kentucky, I went to my alma mater, the University of North Carolina, and talked about money, talked about the stock market, tried to get people at that key age to think about getting beyond their student loans, paying them off as quickly as possible, and getting started investing. It's a passion of ours. Indeed, when I go and speak at schools, I often make a point of trying to pick stocks right out in front of my audience. And Motley Fool Caps has always been a fun tool for me to uh, to type in the stock picks that I make, and I've done that for years. Uh, there are various scorecards all around Motley Fool Caps, just full of speech picks that I made. I did one earlier this year at my one of my alma mater, St. Albans School here in Washington, D.C. In fact, let me see here. Yeah, it was March 9th of this year. If you want to see the eight stocks that I picked that night, and I'm partly mentioning this because it's been a pretty good investment performance for this group of stocks since March 9th, you can just look up um, caps.fool.com slash player slash St. Albans alum 16.aspx. Sorry to give a URL over this podcast, but you'll see those eight stocks that I favored in front of my fellow alumni 
um, about six or seven months ago. So yes, we're out there talking all the time, and I know you are too. And yes, The Motley Fool has written a book, The Motley Fool Investing Guide for Teens. Check it out on Amazon. I think it's in about its fourth printing. It's got a lot of great reviews on Amazon. So we've tried a lot. We've testified before Congress. We've spoken a lot through the media. We think that everybody should understand this topic. I think sex ed is really important. Part of what learning these topics at early ages do is that they cause us to, I hope, not make really bad, big mistakes early in life. Certainly can happen with sexual education, also can happen with a lack of financial education. So it's a universal need and something we're passionate about at The Motley Fool. So yes, Danny, we can do more. And my guest this week is Anna Maria Lusardi. She is one of the nation's foremost experts on financial literacy. She happens to be not too far from Full HQ. She works right in Washington, D.C., and I'm honored to have Dr. Lusardi join in with me. I know you're going to enjoy her in this interview. And after the interview, stay tuned because I have a special announcement that I want to share with you at the end of this week's podcast and then previewing next week's podcast. Without further ado, let's get started. Dr. Anna Maria Lusardi is the Dennett Trust Chair of Economics and Accountancy, as well as the founder and academic director of the Global Financial Literacy. This is a great phrase, Global Financial Literary Excellence. We all need more of that center at uh, George Washington University in nearby Washington, D.C., the School of Business there. Dr. Lusardi, I've followed your pioneering, your sometimes award winning work in the field of financial literacy and financial education. And it's an honor to have you stop by our studios today. Thank you, Davey. Very happy to be here. I want to start just by asking you, where are you from originally? Well, I'm sure you are asking me that because you hear of my accent. So I'm very happy to say I am originally from Italy. I have lived now half of my life in the US and half of my life in Italy. So I can say I am. A stranger in both countries, or maybe a citizen in both countries, but it's um, um, you know I still have my accent. Let's put this. Way. It's it's wonderful, and <laughs> I think it's already clear you speak much better English than I speak Italian. Let me ask: do, When you publish today, do you publish in English more often than not? Yes, I publish mostly in English, actually. Okay. Um, and in this topic, you know, English is the. Uh, Common use language. I have to say, more recently, I've started to write again in Italian, but realize I'm not as good uh, in Italian anymore. So, well, we're happy having you use our language, Dr. Lusardi. How did you first get interested? And I don't even mean as a professional. How about just mm-hmm. in money overall? Did your parents do a good job explaining the world of money to you? Um, well, I I got interested in financial literacy, believe it or not, uh, when I was a little kid. Um, so um, we, I was born actually in a small town in Italy, and in this small town there is a square in the middle of the town, and it's called La Piazza del Mercato, which means the market square, and where normally people go to discuss deals and for business deals. And I think this is almost part of the agricultural tradition that uh, 
Italy had. And so as a little girl, because my parents had three kids, and so I would go with my dad uh, at the Piazza del Mercato, and I would actually listen uh, you know, to all of the discussion, all of the conversations. And I was just there, a little girl, looking up at all of this discussion. And so my interest, believe it or not, in financial literacy originated from those experiences. And I've spent 50 years of my life try to explain what I heard in those, um, you know, messages, in their discussion, in, you know, the prices and, and so on. Mm. That makes a great deal of sense. So, from an early age, this became your subject. At what point did you begin to pursue it professionally? I started at the college level. And so I uh, went to a private university where uh, only economic, you could choose only economics and business. And I have to say, I was determined to study business. But when I uh, arrived, and in fact, probably my first course, I took uh, economics 101 and I fell in love with economics. So I had to abandon my passion for business and switch into economics. And since then, I've studied economics, uh, and more recently, I've studied personal finance, and I think I'm going back to my original passion because I think the personal finance is a good combination of economics and business. And um, one of the things that you are famous for, uh, and we've certainly written an article before at Fool.com about this, in fact, our writer Selena Moranjian is a big fan of yours and of spreading financial literacy. So, if anybody wants to Google now, Selena Morangian is not the easiest thing to remember. But if you just kind of type in Selena and three questions and fool, you're going to find a key part of Dr. Lusardi's work. And Dr. Lusardi, I want to go over one at a time each of the three questions. Yeah. And we're going, if I'm listening, which a lot of people are, I want, as a listener, to be guessing what is the correct answer. We're going to go over the three questions. Is this okay with you? Absolutely. Excellent. And, and then we're going to ask you, as you jog or drive the kids around right now, what is your answer? And then we're going to talk about the correct answer and go from there. Mm -hmm. So let's start with question number one. I'll read it, then I'll read the answers. We'll pause briefly so each person can right. kind of think, and then you'll give the correct answer and what we should know or why you asked that question in the first place. So here, here's the first question. Right. Suppose you had $100 in a savings account and the interest rate was 2% per year. After five years, how much do you think you would have in the account if you left the money to grow? There are three choices. A, more than $102. B, exactly $102. Or C, less than $102. A, more. B, same. C, less. All right, we are all coming up with our answer. Dr. Lusardi, what is the correct answer to question number one? So the correct answer is more than 102 and as you can imagine you know probably a good percentage of people have got, has gotten this question correctly because we meant to have a relatively easy question here this is a question measuring the capacity to do a calculation in the context of interest rate and we have to do this calculation you know very often when we make financial decisions 
you know, we could have made this question more complicated and ask if people know about interest compounding. But in fact, even this basic knowledge we found is really important to understand how, you know, comfortable and how confident and how knowledgeable are people in making these very simple financial decisions. I also want to add one more thing, which is that, you know, normally when people um, uh, look at these questions, they don't put what we actually did put in the list of uh, answer to these questions, and uh, uh, which are important for where you do surveys, formal surveys. So there are two more options at, at, as answer, which is I do not know, and I don't want to answer. And hmm. so it's important to add those options because I think it's important for people to say, I do not know. And if you don't know, I prefer you to say that than kind of to guess. And also, you know, you can refuse to answer if you don't want or don't like this question. It turns out that these two options are pretty important because, you know, there is something I want to say later on about this do not know and I and and actually talk about them not just in the context of Italy uh, of uh, the US and Italy but in the context of many other countries as well. Now Dr. Lusardi has asked this question of many people in many different languages and cultures and once we get through all three I would love for you to share some insights about the US versus others who's the best who's the worst those kinds of things. I will steal a little bit of the fire ahead of time, and I know some of our dyed-in-the-wool Motley Fool listeners already know this, but your studies, I believe, show that the majority, I'll just go here with U.S., the majority of U.S. adults do not get a perfect score on this three-question quiz. No, not at all. In fact, uh, less than half of the population um, get this question correctly. In fact, when we did this earlier on, it was only one third of the population who gets this three question correctly. Mm. So, in other words, we cannot take financial literacy as granted. Indeed. Okay. So, that was question number one. And before we move to question number two, Dr. Lusari, roughly in the US, roughly how many people would get that one right? If I just got it right here on my jog, should I be patting myself on the back? Yeah, this one I think you should. You know, this is uh, this was supposed to be an easy question. It's supposed to measure. You know, do you remember the simple calculations? Um, but also, again, it's in the context of interest rate. Um, so, you know, overall, um, in the latest survey, I think 75% got this question correctly. So, it's not supposed to be a really challenging question. It's really just supposed to measure basic numeracy. Excellent. Thank you. Now, on to number two. Number two reads like this. Imagine that the interest rate on your savings account was 1% per year, and inflation was 2% per year. Something we have to imagine these days. But imagine that. 1% interest rate on savings account, 2% inflation. After one year, how much would you be able to buy with the money in this account? A. More than today. B. Exactly the same. C. Less than today. Now, we also know there's the D, I don't know, and E, I don't want to comment. But these three, A, more, B, exactly, C, less. Okay? Five seconds of reflection. And now, Dr. Lusardi, what is the correct answer to question number two? Is C, less than today. And 
what we are trying to measure here is um, a joint knowledge. Uh, it's a joint test of the knowledge. You know what inflation is. Uh, and so we don't uh, define inflation in this question, and we are using the word inflation. Uh, but and at the same time, the knowledge that if inflation is higher than the interest rate that you are getting on your investment, well, your purchasing power is decreasing. So prices have increased faster than what you have earned on your money. So actually today you are poorer if inflation is higher and you are able to buy less. Indeed. And I suspect, again, most of our Motley Fool Rule Breaker Investing listeners got this one right. I certainly hope so. But am I guessing correctly that this one is not as correctly answered as the first one is? Typical surveys? Um, so, typically, this is also a question that many people know, um, but there are lots of differences, for example, in the population, and there are lots of differences also across countries. Again, this is not meant to be an extremely challenging question, but because it is a joint test of knowledge and of knowledge of inflation and what inflation does, it is a little uh, you know, more complicated. But I think the correct answer are still here in the neighborhood of 70%, so it, according to the recent survey. So this is still something that um, probably because people deal with in their everyday life um, is not you know, very challenging. All right. And that takes us to question number three. This is a true or false question. My favorite as a schoolboy. The ones I really love. True or false. My odds were were up for these. Mm -hmm. And here it goes. Please tell me, you write, whether this statement is true or false. Buying a single company's stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. True or false, buying a single company stock usually provides a safer return than a stock mutual fund. Five seconds of fairy dust. All right, I think we've all arrived at our answer. Dr. Lusari, what is the correct answer to question number three? So it's false. Um, and it's false for several reasons. Here, this is a joint test of knowledge of what is a stock, what's a company stock, what's a stock mutual fund and also what's the safer of these two normally. Um, so, of course, you know we cannot ask here what's the beta <laughs> on, a, on a specific company stock, but um, we are asking, do you know that you know, in one asset is normally riskier than a basket of assets? And it is safer um, to have, in a sense, diversify, uh, a diversified portfolio. In other words, you know, if you put all of your eggs in one basket, it's much uh, riskier. Um, and it's it's a, this is of course a much more complex questions. And because we only had an opportunity to ask three questions, this is a question we ask um, so we are able to differentiate across level of financial knowledge. So I am guessing, and I've done my homework here, so I have to admit I'm not <laughs> just guessing that this of the three questions is the one that stumps most people. Yes, and it stumps it in two ways. So we see that the pattern of responses here completely change, uh, with res completely changes with respect to the first two, which is, first of all, the proportion of correct answer here drops 
quite substantially. And normally only half of the people of the respondent that we ask this question is able to answer correctly. And as you indicated, by the way, um, you know, here you don't have a multiple uh, choice. And so it would be easier to guess correctly, mm, right? That's a but, really good point. Yeah, that's why, you know, people like it. But um, what happens here instead is a lot of respondents choose one of the other two options, meaning they actually say, I do not know. I see. So this is one of the questions where people say, I do not know, and they mean it. I think they do not know what uh, this question even mean, uh, means, and they actually do not know the mm. answer. And a lot of people, and this is certainly true of some people in the United States, I suspect it's even more true of other places in the world, a lot of people don't know what a stock is, right. let alone a stock mutual right. fund. Right, absolutely. Um, and we know this because of other surveys we have done. So when we ask what a stock is and what is a bond, we see that people actually do not know, do not know the distinction between a stock and a bond, and do not know what a stock mutual fund is and does as well. So, uh, which is important, right? Because uh, today people are asked to invest, for example, in their 401ks. And, um, you know, we have, uh, of course, we dis discuss a lot about investing, but the reality is a large proportion of the population doesn't know the difference between uh, a single stock or doesn't know what a stock mutual fund does and also doesn't know about risk diversification, which is really what this question is meant to capture. Um, and, and we have asked this question in many different ways. So it doesn't have to be, in a sense, so complex. It doesn't have to be so jargon-laden. But even if I ask it in a different ways, in fact, this concept of risk diversification is the one that people know the least. Now, of course, I have a number of more key questions for Dr. Lusardi. But first, if you've tried to get a mortgage, you know how frustrating the process is and how you seem to spend hours and hours on paperwork. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process that you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. We both live in the Washington, D.C. area in the United States of America. We would hope for our country, we all, we have listeners all around the world, I would think that all of us would hope that every one of our citizens, our fellow citizens, would know the correct answers to all three of these questions. And I suspect we have a fair number of rule breakers listening right now who are patting themselves on the back saying, I nailed it. But wow, to think that only half of the population here in the US gets this, maybe less than half, can get all three right, suggests there's a lot of work to do. I want to go to that in a second, Dr. Lusardi, but I want to start by asking, um, how does everybody grade out? So, what, which are the countries that do best? You've asked this question many different people. Which are the ones that do worst? And any reflections that you have based on the data? So, we have asked these three questions now in as many as 15 countries. Um, uh, and we have called this project Financial Literacy Around the World. And if you look at the acronym, it becomes Flat World. 
for financial literacy around the world. So we say the world is flat when it comes to financial literacy because interestingly, what we found is that in fact, in many countries, we find that often half of the population knows the correct answer to uh, these three questions. So it's not just the, the US, but in uh, many other countries as well, the level of financial knowledge should not be taken for granted. Interestingly, is the countries with uh, a very strong uh, education system that tend to do better. So for example, Canada or Germany or some of the Nordic countries, we just did a survey in Finland, um, tend to do a little bit better. But again, I think, you know, when you look at the proportion of the population that answer these three questions, which are uh, relatively easy, is not, even in these countries, a very high proportion. Another thing that I want to mention, and I say this all the time, I mean, it's interesting that it's not the countries with the most developed financial markets that tend to do better. In other words, it's not that you know we acquire financial literacy by breathing the air, right? <laughs> or watching the world around us. Mm -hmm. Some of these things are pretty complex, you know. Are you really going to learn about risk diversification? in a sense by you know your experience or by uh, reading about the stock market i mean some concepts are indeed complex and that's why you know when we think about um, you know how can we improve financial literacy i think you know we should not just leave it to the individual to learn because it seems that the process is very long and we have observed, for example, in Germany, where we could actually measure financial literacy in East and what was considered East Germany versus West Germany, 25 years after the unification, people who live in what was East Germany are much less financially literate. Mm. So, you know, it takes a long time. Mm. Well, the natural next question is, what can we do? What can you do? Well, you and your position can do a lot more than most of the rest of us, but what can any of us do to improve financial literacy? I want to answer this question by also having look at the experience of uh, these countries as well. And we have actually learned a lot, which is that, you know, interestingly, all of the groups which, are, which have low financial literacy are similar in these countries. Um, and this group, interestingly, for example, are disproportionately the young, uh, the old, and women, something I want to come back hmm. to okay. later on. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this actually brings uh, the fact that, you know, when it comes to financial literacy, I think it's really important that we start with financial literacy in school. And the reason is financial literacy today is an essential skill to participate to society. You know, we start making financial decisions very early on. In fact, one of the most important decisions we make is in high school, when we decide whether or not to go to college and how to um, uh, pay for that education. And we make now financial decisions all the time. So, you know, in the same way in which I think reading and writing what what was was needed to participate to a more complex society like the industrialized society today in the 21st century we need financial literacy as well now does some of your work look at individual 
just sticking with the United States here, individual states or regions, um, are there certain states that are getting it really right here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, several states um, are acquiring financial literacy. And perhaps what is surprising is that, you know, it's only not even the majority that are doing so. So, you know, a lot of states still do not require either economics or personal finance in high school. Yet, you know, the student loan is at $1.3 trillion, right? So let's uh, Mm. think of that. But also interestingly, when we look at these states, I think there are a lot of differences in how personal finance is required, right? Sometimes it's just a requirement to pass a test. Check a box, get it done. Exactly, which is, you know, the course is not required. And, you know, there is not even training of the teachers. And in fact, until recently, there is not even a curriculum for what should be in a personal finance course. So what we have really learned, and believe me, I don't think we needed a scientific study to prove that, (laughs) but we have proven the obvious, which is it is the state that require a course that train the teachers and have have a rigorous curriculum that actually find that financial literacy not only helps young people deal with that, but is also quite effective. Boy, does that sound very likely to me. Now, Dr. Lusardi, can you give a name of one or two U.S. states that you think do this particularly well? Do you have examples of who's the exemplar? So, for example, I think, you know, there are three states that were indicating in this study, and one that I remember was, for example, Texas. And what they did is they compared Texas with a close-by state that didn't have, in a sense, you know, this type of requirement, didn't have a good curriculum, So, the state's bordering Texas. Texas Texas does this all the time, by the way. I mean, (laughs) it's a big state, and they, you know... Sometimes they look at us and say, big hat, no cattle. But So they're comparing themselves to their neighbors and saying, right. we're and, doing better. And they are doing better. So, um, you know, and, and I think overall, I would say, you know, the state uh, that now pay a lot more attention, for example, to training the teachers and that, you know, have adopted this national standard for financial literacy, I think are, you know, making uh, improvement. Now, I'm hearing you say things like adopted a standard for financial literacy. You also mentioned until recently there hasn't been a curriculum. Um, Could you mention what is a standard and what is some new curriculum? So, we actually thought about this uh, a few years ago when the Council for Economic Education asked us, they put together a group of experts to think about national standard for financial literacy. I think, you know, they existed before, but finally we had, you know, something in writing, like a group of people put together to do so. And so, you know, we then designed what were the list of topics that you know, belong to that curriculum. And by the way, we do this for every other topic. Like if you study modern history, you're not going to study <laughs> the Egyptians, right? Um, so you know, we need to do the same for personal finance and really indicates what are these topics. And also, um, you know, I think one of the issues in my view that affects or that has held back uh, this topic is this idea that you know, personal finance is not rocket science. Um, 
And I actually think it's both, David. Mm. It's science for sure in a sense that, you know, what we teach is a <laughs> lot of these mathematics behind the financial decisions, right? For example, interest compounding. You know, we explain risk, which actually comes from probabilities. And we explain, you know, variances and we explain dispersion. Um, and we explain that to make financial decisions, you have to do calculations. And so there is a lot, in fact, of science in that financial literacy. I mean, your three questions looked at it from another angle are math questions. They at, are at math least questions. Two of them just basic math. Right, and the, and the second is the, the third is statistics. You know, so they are uh, science, but they are also a rocket, a rocket that will fall on our head mm. if we don't address this financial illiteracy, in particularly among the young. Mm. And let's close there with my final question, which is, what what can we do for our young? What what have you done for the young people in your life? What do you do for yeah. students? What can I do as a parent or a citizen of my community? That's a great question. So, because we are a global center, uh, we started local. And the first initiative that I have done when I started uh, the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center, or GFLAC, um, at George Washington University, we studied a, we started a personal finance course for actually college students. Uh, in the same way in which we teach finance, corporate finance to the MBAs, we can teach personal finance because today we are going to be our own CFO. Uh, we are going to manage you know, quite a bit of our wealth over a lifetime and it's our responsibility to do so. And I don't miss any opportunity to try to help or try to uh, push these courses in other colleges, in other universities, in other places. But again, I think we need to start much earlier. We need to start in high school and in fact, even before that. When people ask me, when is it you have to start uh, teaching personal finance? I say, when the tooth fairy arrives. Mm. And that's a good time to talk about money, given that you know the, uh, uh, the tooth fairy will bring you some yes, money. Yes, you sure hope so. Anyway. <laughs> As a parent, I occasionally forgot my role until the morning, where you try to be very, very subtle with your child. But I agree yeah. that that's a great, and that means it's an early date. Exactly. And, yeah. and I think there is an important role for parents, grandparents, the community to improve financial literacy and support financial literacy. One of our recommendations is be an ambassador for financial literacy. For example, ask it in your school, ask it in your library. This is sometimes what it takes to have a new financial literacy and ask the business community, for example, to just pitch in for training the teacher or to maybe buy the textbook. We mm. can all contribute to that. But also talk to your kids about money. It's a very important topic today. And I think these um, you know, early habits start very early. And that's why I think you know, we need to think of this topic really early on. And it needs to be part of our conversation. We live in the 21st century, and money is part of the 21st century. And I also think that you know, when I uh, my big uh, advice to the young people is really invest in themselves, invest in their knowledge. You know, it's uh, the knowledge is about the future. And 
financial literacy, what it is in access, is a vision about the future. And I tell them it's a happiness project. But happiness doesn't happen in the short run. It happens in the long run. And so to pursue your happiness, you have to look at the long run. You have to have a vision for your future. And that's why you need to be financially literate. Mm. Well, you're certainly preaching to the choir, not just here in this studio, but to many who are hearing you this week. Dr. Lusardi, thank you very much for your work, one of the nation's foremost experts on financial literacy. Honored to have you this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, what a delightful conversation. I learned a lot and really happy to note that Dr. Lusardi is also spending time with some others here at The Fool, generously sharing additional time suffering fools gladly today. And that brings me to my special announcement. Well, again, as I mentioned, it all started with a tweet on September 4th, but it's continuing to build and rolling up into something new for us here at The Motley Fool. So, my special announcement is that we are opening this month Fool School. Now, if you're picturing a physical bricks and mortar space in which kids, probably kids, come and get educated about money, you're picturing it right. However, that bricks and mortar is Fool HQ. We don't have enough funds at present to build a new edifice that will be crowned one day, I hope, Fool School, but we're using our offices. And as of today in this podcast, we are inviting anybody who wants to tour, come to the Washington, D.C. area. Maybe you're already in Northern Virginia or Maryland or D.C., or maybe you're bringing a class here when the cherry blossoms begin to bloom this coming spring. If you'd like to sign your class up or your scout troop up or whoever you are overseeing kids, helping them to get more financially literate, we want to help you. We've got volunteers lined up here, a few dozen here at The Motley Fool, ready to welcome kids and teach them an hour or so about money. We take them at all ages, although they should be at least, let's let's go with at least five years old, right on up. So, if you're interested, if you'd like to bring a group of kids and start spreading financial literacy with The Fool's help, the email address is foolschool at fool.com. So, in closing, I want to thank Danny Venna for his tweet that touched this all off. I want to thank Anna Maria Lusardi for her time today. I want to thank you for listening to this every week, for being with me, for being part of what we do here at The Motley Fool, which is to help the world invest better. Next week, it's going to be a horse of a different color. We've had some all-star interviewees in recent weeks. Next week, it's just going to be little old me sitting in front of the microphone again, except that it's not just going to be me, because I need your help. Next week is going to be the second in our continuing series. This makes it a series of mental tips and tricks. So, on June 15th of this year, I did the first one, Mental Tips and Tricks. You can go back and listen to it, especially if you're new. I'd encourage you to listen to it. Those are some of my favorite mental tips and tricks. But next week, we're going to have some more. And I'm adding a third category here, because this already was kind of happening last time, life hacks. Mental tips and tricks and life hacks. Now, I know you've got something good for me, and I'd love to feature it on next week's show. I already have five more of my favorites, but I'm all ready. So, go ahead and email us, rbi at fool.com, with a mental tip, a mental trick, or a life hack that you think other fools, nation, or worldwide would appreciate. Or, of course, you can just tweet us at, at RBI Podcast. Until then, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 
Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.